Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In August, the Biden administration announced its loan cancellation plan. The plan sparked widespread accolades and backlash, and it left many wondering how Republicans should respond and what the Republican vision on post-secondary education finance should be. To discuss these questions and more, I invited Congresswoman Virginia Fox onto the podcast. Dr. Fox represents North Carolina's 5th District in the United States House of Representatives and is the Republican leader of the House Committee on Education and Labor. Dr. Fox, welcome to the report card. Thank you, Nat. I appreciate being here. It is a privilege to have you here. Thanks so much for giving us some of your time. We're going to get to student loans. I promise it is certainly sort of the topic du jour, but... First, it's always helpful to know where folks are coming from. So before we get there, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your district? Sure. My district uh, is based in the mountains of North Carolina, an area that used to be a very, very poor area. It goes down to the Piedmont, down around Forsyth County and Winston-Salem. It includes, uh, right now, 12 counties. Uh, And they are... Primarily, uh, they're all rural counties, um, hardworking people, agriculture, light manufacturing, although a lot of the manufacturing has gone away. Uh-huh. A lot of people commute to go to work. So it's, it's always been a, a, very, uh, a group of people that work very, very hard to survive. I grew up there um, in the county right next to where I live and uh, have but I've been there since I was six years old. All right. So speaking of your time coming up, you have played a number of professional roles. So college professor, administrator, president, school board member. You've been in state government. And, of course, you spent some time in the House of Representatives. We know that. But you didn't get there the way that would go in most instances, sort of from a position of privilege. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and your schooling experiences? Sure. My mother had a sixth grade education, my father a ninth grade education. I lived until I was 14 in a house with no electricity and no running water. That's when we moved into a house with electricity and running water. But my parents were always had high expectations of me academically, my two brothers and my sister. And I had very poor eyesight. I loved to read. I learned to read early on. So I loved school. And I always saw education as a way out of poverty. And so I worked very hard. Um, My senior year in high school, I was the high school janitor. I had a student teacher who said, you need to go to college and you need to marry a man with a college degree because you're smart. Well, I had no plans to go to college, but the last minute I took the SAT and I got enrolled as a day student at a junior college where a lot of local people went to school. Then I... Met my husband, got married, transferred, graduated after seven years of working full-time and going to school part-time. So I cherish my degree. I wound up with a degree in English. I wanted to be a high school English teacher, but I couldn't quit school to do student teaching. We moved back to the mountains from Chapel Hill, and I decided I wanted to get my master's degree in college teaching. And so I did a very unusual thing. I left my husband and my daughter at home during the week and went back to Carolina during the week and got my master's in college teaching. 
so that I could teach at Appalachian State University. I did that for 15 years. Then I became president of a community college. I left the university because I thought the community colleges was where the action was. And it was where the action was. Yeah. Um, then I, I left the community college, ran for the state senate, was on the education committee, and then uh, ran for Congress. So my background has been infused with education, and I've always seen education as a way out of poverty and as the way for people to have choices in their lives. You don't necessarily have to have a baccalaureate degree, but you need certification. You need skills. My major skill was typing. I took typing in high school, and thank goodness I did because it helped me work my way through college. Yeah. So that's my background. And, and in every job that I've had, I've been able to encourage young people to pursue the right kind of education for themselves. I had a brother nine years younger than I. In 1969, he said to me, I don't want to go to college, but I don't want mom and you and mom and dad to be ashamed of me. I said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to be a carpenter. So I was, it was just before I went back for my master's, so I helped set up a carpentry apprenticeship program for him because I wanted him again to get a certification. And I understood that. I was just a year out of college myself. And I'm not really sure how I could understand how to do all that, but I did. And so my brother got his journeyman license. But he made me realize how strongly the feeling is among people without a college degree that they're somehow or another second-class citizens. And I've worked against that all my life. So this story is just sort of epic in scope, and it's so American. It's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to believe. So, you know, but I want to pull out a couple of these things here. Uh, you know, I didn't even know in sort of my prep. I try and do some preparation in these right. podcasts, but I, I didn't know that you had set up apprenticeship programs before uh, <laughs> just a, a year out of your, your master's program. Let me ask a little bit about how your background sort of shapes your understanding of these problems, right? And I mean, particularly on the student loan problems. So you've just discussed how, well, you know, you don't have to get a baccalaureate degree necessarily, but we often think about student loans in terms of, well, we don't necessarily want to take student loans, but we take them because we know the degree can be beneficial. And my curiosity about that is what do you want students to understand when they kind of come up to this decision, sort of like your brother, but like many do now? I mean, I don't have to tell you, college is a little more expensive now than it was in 1969. So those loans can be sort of a, an essential part of this. How do you advise young people when they're looking at these sort of decisions? Well, let me back up just a step or two. I think part of the problem we have in our culture right now is that we do push people into getting baccalaureate degrees. You know, my brother said it in 1969. It was pretty pervasive then. It's even more pervasive now. Yeah. You're told if you really want to have a good life, you've got to get a college degree. Well, colleges and universities, as you said, have raised their prices twice the rate of inflation in the last 20 years. And so many people think, well, I can't go to college without borrowing money. Well, you can go to college without borrowing money. And many things are happening recently, like early college, people being encouraged to go to community college for two years, get basic education programs out of the way. But basically what I tell students is look for alternatives to borrowing money. 
because there are alternatives. Now, you know, a lot of people say to me, I say, well, I went, I went through school without borrowing any money. My husband did borrow some money. He was totally on his own. I was totally on my own. I went to school part-time, went, worked full-time. He went to, he worked part-time, went to school full-time. He had $1,500 in loans, which we paid off over a 10-year period of time. So I've been in that world. But what I say to people is you can do it without borrowing money, and certainly without borrowing a lot of money. Uh, look for the ways to do that. Again, early college, community college for basic programs, and certainly don't decide you're going to go to a school that charges seventy-five dollars or $80,000 a year to get a degree where you can go to a, a school that is a lot less expensive than that. You may like the prestige, but my experience is five years out, people don't really care when you were, where you went to college. Let me ask you a little bit about that because there's a script that we develop as a culture for kids in high school. The script has increasingly become college for all, which is everybody should get a baccalaureate degree, but it's become so pervasive over the past 15, 20 years that we've got an actual name for it. So there's college for all, but there's also prestigious colleges are the way to success. And so we've handed students this script, and that script does seem to rely for most students on a boatload of student loans. How powerful do you think that script is? Oh, I think it's very, very powerful. I think, unfortunately, it's extremely powerful. And I think we have, we're beginning to break through, I think. I think COVID, the best thing that came out of COVID was the exposure of the fecklessness of post-secondary education and elementary and secondary education. I think we saw so much bad in education that it, it's really changing people's minds. And all the headlines about the loans and the cost, even before COVID, was beginning to make people think college is not worth it. Not if I've got to go into big-time debt. It's just not worth it. And I think that's great. And let me go off on a little tangent with you that I think is important. You know, the college loan business started because the country wanted more access for low-income students. So that's how it began. Pell Grants were designed for low-income students. I was working the second year that Pell Grants began at Appalachian State University running a program for disadvantaged students. And so I remember it very well. And it did pay a good portion of the financial aid. But that's how we got, the federal government primarily got into the business. First, uh, the GI Bill to help soldiers coming back. And then uh, for low-income and minority students in particular. And just like other things in the federal government, it's just grown like you know, a monster into something that I don't think was it was ever designed to do. We have access now. That is not an issue. And truly money is not an issue for students. The other thing we've sold people is a four-year degree. Well, only 53% of students going into a baccalaureate program graduate after six years. So that's the other mindset that people have. Okay, I've got to borrow this money. I can't work. 
I got to, you know, go full steam ahead. And still they don't finish in four years. And every year that they're there adds to the problem. This is a really interesting perspective that you bring. You are president of Mayland College, right? Correct. And, it's, and this was a community college. Correct. Right? And I, I imagine most of the people that you deal with up on Capitol Hill, when they think of post-secondary education, their, their first picture is, you know, students graduate high school and then they go to UNC or Michigan or, you know, wherever they sort of think of or Princeton, whatever their image is. You have a very different picture as the sort of many years as a president of a community college. How does that sort of shape the way you approach and how does it make you distinct from many of your fellow lawmakers? Well, we really don't have people in the Congress who have educational experience. Maybe now one other Republican right now, right. and no Democrats that I'm aware of, that have worked on a college campus, and certainly not in helping students directly. When I was president of Malin Community College, I mean, again, I sought that position because I wanted to help the students in that region, students who would have been like I was, but the average age when I was at Malin was 31 years of age. That's the, generally the average age of community college students. So you're exactly right. People have to adjust their image of what a college student is these days. And by the way, I think I'm right on this. Only 24% of the students currently enrolled in post-secondary education are 18 to 24-year-olds coming straight out of high school into a residential college. So 76% or somewhere about there don't fit that image that you're right, that most people have in their minds. So we need to be talking about people who need to reskill. I was told, we were told 40 years ago that we'd change professions seven times in our lives or occupations seven times in our lives. Think what's going to happen in the future with the way technology is going. So we're talking about dealing with older people who need to constantly upskill, reskill, improve their skills, change uh, what they're able to do in order to keep a job. Well, Dr. Fox, I think you're almost a seven, aren't you? Uh, right? You're almost there. <laughs> what does strike me, you're talking about one out of four students fits the script that is so powerful, but that script is so dominant that it amplifies that image. So it often conjures up a world that is just very different from the world that we need to, to consider. That is exactly right. And again, with online learning now, many students, you know, again, are doing everything online, never, almost never darkening the door. Right. So one more question. I need to get to student loans, but I have to ask you, you spent some time on the Watauga County School Board. And that is another set of experiences and, and, and insights that's got to shape the way you see education policy issues as you're working on the committee that just escapes the experience of many of your contemporaries. How does working on a school board for so long inform your, your work on the committee and in Congress? Well, I'll tell you two little stories. I was on school board for 12 years. Uh, it's the only election I ever lost, by the way. I, my first election for school board, I lost by about 200 votes. And I've always said it was a great gift to lose that election. 
because it showed me I could lose and live. It's tough running for office. It's really tough. And when you lose, it's it's heartrending. I can imagine. Um, I ran two years later, and I won. And, of course, I, I didn't go on the school board with any agenda, no agenda. I was encouraged to run because of my background. Uh, when I was first encouraged to run, I said, oh, I'm not qualified. Well, I was teaching at Appalachia, and I had a child in school. So many women think that. They say, I'm not qualified. No, no, no. And the man sitting next to me said, you mean you're not as qualified as those five turkeys sitting over there? there and I go. said, well, yes, I am. Anyway, two stories I will tell you. Um, we had a gentleman there who worked in the area of uh, skills development outside the academic skills area. And he came in one night and talked to us about a program we were going to have to do. And I said, well, why are we going to have to do this? He said, because the federal government says we have to do it. I said, whoa, back. You know, that's not, that's, we're supposed to be in local control of education. He said, no, no, the federal government says we have to do it. I said, what about a little civil disobedience? Well, they'll just cut off all of our funds. Well, we don't want to do this. Well, we have to do it. And then another time I asked the same gentleman a question, and I said, um, why are we doing this? And he said, because that's the way we've always done it. And I said, his name was Joe. I said, Joe, please don't ever give me that answer again. Please don't ever give. So I learned from being on the school board that it's a pretty static situation in most cases. Now, I think, again, with COVID, We've seen a, a sea change in what's happening in education. Suddenly, parents are waking up to seeing what's going on. But I also saw where 10 parents could come to a school board and change a policy of the school board because they would protest it. And so it was, it's been, a, my background has just been, I think, ideal for me to be on this committee. School board, university, community college, parent grandparent. Uh, lots of my experiences as a grandparent and a parent have informed me. So, I, you know, I don't say I'm an ideal member of Congress, but I say my experiences have helped me be, I think, the kind of person I need to be in this position. Well, fair enough. They've certainly given you perspective to bring to the That's committee. Right. So let's turn to student loans. Okay. They're in the news. You may have noticed. I, I, I believe you have. Let's hold aside right now the big student loan forgiveness plan. I promise we'll get to that. But I think that sort of setting the table for this discussion, we, ha we have to touch on how the Biden administration has already made major changes. And I mean, by already, even prior to the forgiveness announcement and so forth, to the federal student loan program. Can you lay out those and what you think listeners need to know about, you know, what happened prior to the student loan announcement that the administration's been on? Well, some people may remember that, um, that President Biden really believes in free college. His wife has pushed that. He pushed it in the campaign. But they absolutely know they couldn't get that through Congress. So I think what they've done is chip away at the cost of college for very many students. So they've been working on this from the very beginning of the administration. Make no mistake about it. Uh, that's what they would like to have. So they began by um, uh, continuing the 
facade, I would call it, of a national emergency. And in fact, the president just signed again the National Emergency Declaration, which allows them to do a lot of things that they normally wouldn't be able to do. So uh, they expanded the loan forgiveness uh, by waiving statutory requirements and making generous repayment plans. So income-driven repayment plan, or IDR as we talk about it, um, they have used... Um, they've, they've interpreted laws in ways that I think are not, that the Congress never intended them to be interpreted, like the HEROES Act. Um, and they basically lie about how the programs were set up and how they are now administering them. For example, the public service loan forgiveness was set up basically to help a small group of people who wanted to go into truly serving occupations. And this was set up under the Bush administration a long, long time ago. Long time ago. Long time ago by Democrats. Right. By Democrats. So they set this program up for a small group of people. So it would be nurses who work in nonprofits. It would be firefighters, law enforcement people. People who work in nonprofit organizations would be able to get. They the assumption was they'd be making low incomes, and they wouldn't have to pay much back on their loans. And then after a period of time, the loan would be forgiven. We actually, while yeah, during the Bush administration, we actually expanded it, or maybe it was under Obama, to um, to assistant district attorneys. Because I remember some of my Republican colleagues voting. For, it had to be under President Obama because uh, it would have been introduced by a Democrat, I'm sure. And I remember chiding some of my Republican colleagues for voting for it. And, and one of them said, well, they don't make much money. So, you know, assistant district attorneys getting their loans paid off. So what they did was they just widened that out as wide as the barn door and— uh, basically to forgive as much as they possibly could. I don't know if you heard uh, Randy Weingarten brag one day that under uh, PSLF, there was a student, a woman, a teacher in California who had a $450,000 loan that was going to be wiped out completely because of PSLF. Now, explain to me how anybody who's going to go into education would be foolish enough to take out $450,000 in loan and assume that your salary would allow you to pay that back. It makes no sense. I can't explain it. You're looking at me like I should be able to explain <laughs> it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up empty on that. Yeah. It's also interesting. I just saw the other day for, for some time we've been hearing PSLF payments are going to bloom Eventually, it's gonna, the costs are really going to come in. The projected costs are huge. Last year, they said, well, it's, there's only been so much spent. It was several hundred million. And I, I believe that the, the most recent year's numbers came in at, at $12 billion. So we're starting to see the ballooning start. Right. Go and, ahead. Let's, and, and let's remember that when this loan system was set up, it was supposed to be making money for the federal government, Right. And Elizabeth Warren protested this all the time. It's making money. It's not making money. It's losing money. And this is from the recent GAO report that revealed that actually instead of making money, it's been losing 
right. a reasonable amount of money. I'm not saying that it's reasonable that it's lost, but the sign has flipped. It is no longer a negative cost. It is quite a, a positive cost. To That's exactly right. Right. Okay. So we can't ignore the elephant in the room. Biden has gone in for the uh, student debt forgiveness plan. Now, there were a number of forms that this plan could take, right? And, right. and we heard about them when many candidates for the Democratic nomination for the presidency were going back and forth about, well, you know, I'll do $50,000 and I'll do $10,000 and so forth. Given all the possibilities that were out there, how did you react when you learned of the Biden administration's plan? Well, as you said, there were a lot of there were a lot of things that could have been done, but frankly, we were a little shocked when we saw the breadth and the depth of what they decided they wanted to do. Uh, it's much greater than we expected. Uh, we always knew there'd probably be an emphasis on Pell Grant recipients. Again, the assumption is those are people of low income who. Um, we want to help people with low income. You know, the American people are very generous people. I'm, I'm a big believer in helping people who are trying to help themselves. And the idea was, okay, these are people who are poor. They want to get a college degree, improve their status in life, just like I was trying to do by getting a college degree. Um, but uh, we, we really were stunned uh, by uh, the, the breadth of it. Um, and how much it's going to wind up costing the American people. It, it's going to come close to wiping out just about all the debt. So is this plan legal? I don't think so. And uh, I'm happy to see the lawsuits that have been filed. Um, the issue is um, we have a very complicated court system. You know, the average citizen out there says, well, of course, this is not legal. There's no statutory authority to do this, so just stop it. Well, somebody has to get standing in the court to be able to stop it, and people have come at it from different angles as to why it's illegal, and I'm hoping one of those, um, either groups or persons, um, is going to get standing in the court and be able to stop it before it goes into effect. But let, let me try and capture this because not everybody understands what standing is. So I'm going to take a, a stab at explaining this and you tell me if I got it right. Standing is whether you're allowed to bring a lawsuit. Not just everybody can say, no, the government's not allowed to do this. Now, there have been folks who've said, look, the executive just can't forgive student loans. And there's this famous clip of Nancy Pelosi in the chamber saying the president doesn't have the authority to do this. So there, there's some question. The contest here isn't over legality, at least in the first round. We can't get a judge to hear the case, and by we, I mean the American people, right. until there's somebody who can say, yes, you have standing to sue. So right now, it's less about, well, is this legal or not, and more about, is there anybody who can bring a lawsuit so a judge can have a hearing? Do I have this correct? Correct. That's exactly right. That's what standing means. And, and I think a little further is, okay, the person or the group has to prove that either the person or the group has been harmed by the action of the president. Right. And, and the Biden administration has been careful. Again, I'm offering evidence here. You tell me if I'm wrong. They've taken several steps to trim their sales on this plan in order to make sure that a group that may have standing— doesn't get forgiveness. 
I mean, this seems fairly lawless, right? It seems to me that we have to stay out of court. We believe we will get judged against if it makes it to court. So let's make sure that the actions that we take don't have anyone withstanding who might be harmed. Yes. I, I mean, I think they'd go a lot farther if they thought they could get by with it. And I think they will push as hard and as far as they can go till they get stopped. And it's really a travesty. It's a true travesty in our country. And it's something, you know, I'm, I'm a big history buff, and it's something that our founders really thought they could protect against an executive that would be able to have this kind of power. They never thought this would happen. And again, the average American can't understand how this could have happened in our country, that a president could take on the legislative role as well as the executive role, as well as the judicial role. But that is a very scary thing that is happening in the country right now. Now, I think there's one other thing to, to just bring into sharp relief before we move to my next question. I got a lot of questions for you, but it could be that if the Republicans take the House, that there's an idea, well, maybe the Republicans could, could sue. But there's a real problem there in yeah. that a lot of the money on the on the current schedule would be forgiven in the next three months. So we're talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars out the door, hundreds of billions of dollars potentially. Well, we think it'll ultimately be at least a trillion. If you start adding up everything that could happen. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, even if we call it half a trillion dollars, the administration has pegged it there on their own. This will cost $380 billion, right? That's a big number. So by any amount, if the House of Representatives were to bring suit, they would have to wait until they were sworn in, which means that most of the money would be out the door. And even if it was ruled illegal, I imagine the funding that has gone out the door, we wouldn't then say, I'm sorry, you owe that money again. So once achieved, it really doesn't matter. So the clock between now and December is a pretty important one. It is a pretty important one. Uh, my understanding is that the the website is up. I have not looked at the website. It was it crashed for a little while, I think, but I think they now have they're saying about ten thousand applications or something like that. And uh, it's very scary also to hear, you know, they have to give their name, address. Um, I don't know if they even have to give their social security number, I guess so. And then they attest as to what their income is. And uh, they're not going to verify that on every single person that asks for money uh, or asks for forgiveness. They're going to do a sample and say, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's very, very frightening to me and, again, I think to the American people. So this is an expansive loan forgiveness for many, many people that will cause hundreds of billions, maybe a trillion dollars. We won't know until nothing can be done about it. But let me ask you something more specifically. Are Republicans in general, and let me just ask for you, you can re represent Republicans in general if you like, are you uniformly opposed to any debt forgiveness at all? And if so, what's the principle that you use to determine whether a specific debt proposal is justified on the merits? Uh, well, Republicans are not just total naysayers again. We think that well, some Republicans think. We have some Republicans who would not do this at all, and I understand that. Uh, I have a big question in my mind about the role of the federal government in education. Um, but as I explain to people, 
you know, if if I had been in charge, I wouldn't have gotten the federal government involved in education because it's not spelled out in the Constitution. But we are there. So how can we be responsible in terms of what's happened? I don't believe I can get the federal government out of education. So what can we do? So Republicans have introduced a bill called the REAL Act, Responsible Education Assistance Through Loans, or the REAL Act, which would allow for loans to be taken out by students, but it would, it would have a, a much tighter mechanism. So much of the mechanism that's in existence right now is loosey-goosey, complicated, difficult for even the bureaucrats to understand, let alone the students. And so um, we think we could develop a program like that where the students um, would borrow the money they need and pay back only what it is that they borrow. That's another issue with the current loan programs that in many cases the students are paying back only interest and they wind up after a period of time having, not, having the principal still not paid for and interest accruing. We think we should be honest with the students and say, this is what you're borrowing, this is what you're going to pay back with a reasonable amount of interest to it. Uh, and we will make it clear to you how you're going to do this and what period of time you're going to have. Back to the Biden announcement. So there's a lot of fanfare about student loan forgiveness, student loan forgiveness, student loan forgiveness. There's lots of money. Let's talk about how much it's going to cost and whether we should or shouldn't do it. But there's a whole nother portion to that announcement about the income driven repayment changes, the IDR changes. And if you go to sleep on this, you can miss a bunch of changes that have some pretty serious costs associated with that. Right. Can you kind of lay out the IDR changes, how much you think might be entailed, and tell me what you think about those changes? Well, first of all, let me say the Democrats are always very good at capturing language. They're calling this student loan forgiveness. What I prefer to call it is a transfer of wealth. <laughs> So I do think it's important that we talk about that because this is money borrowed that is owed to the American taxpayer. The American taxpayers basically, it's, it's money on the books as loans. American taxpayer are going to pay it back. So this, and it, it applies to about 13% of the American people. So 87% of the American people are going to be having to pay back what those 13% are saying, oh, I should be forgiven of that. So I'd like to make that clear. Right. It's not a forgiveness. You don't just wipe the slate clean. There's not manna from heaven that comes down and, and forgives this. So You can't, you can't just write this <clears throat> off. No, right? <laughs> you can't just write this off. So um, IDR is, stands for Income Driven Repayment. And the way it was set up, again, is students assuming they were in low they were low income would report what their income is their disposable income and then they would have a payment to make some of them would have income so low they wouldn't have to make any kind of payment they could have a zero payment over a period of 10 years and and whatever they paid during that 10 years then at the end of the 10 years their loan would be forgiven 
So that was a loan forgiveness program. Right. And then the Biden administration has proposed some changes to the terms of that program. So this is not instituting a program. It's sort of saying, well, now we're going to change some aspects of it. And that's going to make it potentially much more expensive over the long. That's right. Yeah, that's why I said, you know, we if you add up all the little things that have happened in these different programs, the extension of non-payment, uh, IDR, uh, the wipeout of specific loans, that's why I said pretty soon you're talking about real money here, the hundreds of billions of dollars that you were talking about. All right, Dr. Fox, we're going to take a break for a moment and do what we call grade it. And you do not have to be an easy grader. I imagine that if I were your student at Appalachian State so long ago, I might not get straight A's. So you feel free to give straight grades. I had usually a bell-shaped curve in my classes. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, Uh, here's the first one. The U.S. Botanical Garden. Oh, A. I love the botanical gardens. You know, my husband and I um, went into the nursery and landscape, a nursery and landscaping business, um, and um, our daughter still runs it now. And so I love seeing gardens and plants. So the, it, it is great. And I encourage people when they come to Washington to go to the botanical gardens. And it's, it's convenient from where you work, right? It's, it's just down the. It's very convenient. It's a hidden gem in the nation's it is a capital. Hidden gem. All right. Now, you said that you used to be a president of a community college, but I also want you to give a grade to American community colleges. Um, they vary. I know some really, really super duper uh, community colleges and then some that are average. Uh, so much depends on the president of the college, just like our public schools depend on the caliber of the principal and the teachers. Um, but yeah, some are really, really excellent and are producing wonderful students, performing really important work. But on the whole, I think the community colleges are doing a great job. Uh, and I would say, I don't know every community college in the country. I know a lot of them in North Carolina. I know a lot in Texas, for example. I visited there. I, I would say, for the most part, a B plus. All right, B plus. Virginia Woolf. Oh, <laughs> well, uh, you know, I was an English major. I know. I did read some of Virginia Woolf, um, a little maybe before her time in terms of um, her lifestyle and uh, what she wrote about. We didn't study her a lot in my English classes. Um, I don't know. Probably give her a B. Mount Airy, North Carolina. Oh, Mount Airy gets an A+. Mount Airy is the um, town that Andy Griffin grew up in. And so Andy Griffith uh, of Mayberry fame and the Andy Griffith Show. And there's a statue of Andy there in Mount Airy. It is the quintessential small town America in the 1950s. Um, the, the downtown area has been pretty much um, kept alive like it was. Uh, there's a theater there. Uh, there's a radio station that does live music on the weekends. Um, the Snappy Lunch is still there. Um, there's a squad car um, that 
you can get a ride around town. And it's a great place to visit. They have Mayberry Days in September for people who are aficionados of uh, Andy Griffith. So uh, it's a great place to visit. A nation at risk. You know, we see uh, references to a nation at risk all the time. I was reading something over the weekend, as a matter of fact, referring to it. Uh, 1984, I think, um, if I'm right, sort of about the year. Um, it's still very relevant. Uh, I'd, I'd give it an A. Uh, we have not really taken the lessons of a nation at risk at heart, to heart, I think, and we're still slipping. We see, you know, the NAEP stores that came out recently are uh, not good, went backwards for the first time ever in math. So uh, I don't think we've I don't think we have um, we've taken it to heart. You know, it's education, particularly K twelve, has not changed for two hundred years in our country. Why do we still operate on an agriculture model? I don't understand it. To quote Joe, we've always done it that way. That's I, right, I exactly. Think. <laughs> spelling bees. Um, Spelling bees are great. When I was in school, I participated in spelling bees. I've always been a good speller. You know, I took a chance about five or six years ago and um, took part in the press uh, congressional spelling bee. I was, it was when I was chair of the, the committee. I was very nervous about doing it, but I think I made it through about seven rounds and then there was a dispute about one of the words that I spelled, and I actually had a Democrat come to my defense and uh, support me in my disagreement with the judges. Um, so I think I made it through seven rounds, and then they got into exotic words for for uh, alcoholic beverages and things like that, which are out of my realm. Out of your realm. Yeah, but, but I love spelling bees. So you gave me a great segue to my next one bipartisanship in 2022 how would you grade it <laughs> uh not great i'd say it's a c minus at least um it's been very difficult this year to get things passed uh i don't know how many bills have been signed by president biden last year i think it was 95 so not a lot is getting passed even good legislation it's it's really unfortunate that we have become so divided so Bipartisanship, it, no more than a C minus or a D. American schools pandemic response. F for sure. F for sure. Um, it was just abysmal, absolutely abysmal. The teachers unions ran it. Um, Dr. Fauci's recommendations were totally wrong. Um, it's, it's a real shame. We set students back uh, more than two years. Uh, by having them not be in school. And it's it's a real tragedy for our country, a real tragedy. The Duke-UNC rivalry. Oh, the Duke-UNC rivalry is, um, I don't know how to grade it. Uh, it certainly is popular. Um, I, It's something that gives people a lot to talk about, and the teams love it. So, you know, there's a bell that goes back and forth between the two schools. So I guess I'd have to give it an A. Um, as rivalries go, as rivalries it deserves go. a decent score. As rivalry. That's right. That's right. Dare you back a horse in the rivalry? Uh, oh, well, see, my husband bleeds Carolina blue. Mm -hmm. And so 
But I have some very good friends who went to Duke, and I'll tell you a funny story on myself. This past weekend, I did not know Duke was playing Carolina. So my I knew my Duke friends were going. They don't live in North Carolina. They were going to the Duke game, and I said, good luck. And my Duke friend said, are you allowed to wish us good luck? And I said, sure, if you're not, you know, as long as you're not playing, you know who, not knowing that it was the Duke-Carolina game, but Carolina won, so I guess I'm off the hook. There, there you go. You might have to get after your staff. I mean, I, they're really <laughs> supposed to keep you up to date on the important things, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that up to you. All right. Thank you for uh, that round of grade. Your grades are logged in the report. <laughs> Thanks. I was a tough grader. You, I'm, I'm sure you were. Uh, <laughs> let's return to the Republican vision for post-secondary education. And the administration's made some aggressive moves. That's taken a lot of the spotlight. But Republicans aren't without a vision on higher education policy. And there's this bill, right? The Responsible Education Assistance Through Loan Reforms, or the, the Real Reforms Act. Correct. Can you lay out for us the vision that is contained in that bill? Okay. What we don't want is to provide blanket bailouts to students and borrowers. What we'd like to see happen, first of all, is college costs stop going up so much. And what the president is doing, what the Democrats are doing, is going to do nothing about lowering the cost of post-secondary education. And that's as big a tragedy as the... Uh, transfer of all this debt onto taxpayers. So what we want to do is targeted relief for those who are harmed by the broken and complicated system that has been created. But it's got to protect the interests of students and taxpayers, and it's got to be accompanied by real reforms that ensure that it never happens. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that students again, are only are on the hook only for what they actually borrow, but that they pay that back with interest, and we make sure that that's the way it's approached. If they pay for 10 years and their payments are still not enough to reduce their balance by any money, we would waive accrued interest and give them a fresh start and chance to pay back what they actually borrowed. So pay back what you owe, but not more. This shouldn't be a program for the government to make money, nor should it be a giveaway to people. Uh, the, the federal government shouldn't be the largest consumer bank in the country. It just shouldn't be. And part of this is capping borrowing for graduate student loans. Why, right. why focus on graduate student loans? Why pick on the graduate students? I was a graduate student. I mean, <laughs> it, it seems like graduate students shouldn't be a special class. Why does that make sense? Well, because again, um, the schools have no incentive to hold down the cost of going to graduate school. And right now, a lot of what's being paid back are the loans of graduate students. And these are the people making big bucks. Why in the world, again, should people who never went to college or who went to college and paid for their college, why should they be paying that back? So we think a cap of $25,000 a year is a reasonable amount of money for graduate students. And then as far as the changes to Pell Grants, 
there's expanding some eligibility for Pell Grants. Right. Can you explain that logic to me? Yes. We think, again, Pell Grants, again, were designed for access. So what we would like to see happen is that we give Pell Grants to students who are in programs that are going to give them skills that they need to get started working and then continue their education while they're working. So it would be, we call it short-term Pell. It would be for programs that are um, accredited and give the students the opportunity to begin building their college uh, credits. And that's what we think is most needed in the country right now. We want people to be lifelong learners. They're going to have to be lifelong learners, whether we want them to be or not, again, because we know that the skills are going to change that they're going to need. And so getting people in the door, getting them some skills, letting them go to work, and having, by the way, in many cases, the employer could underwrite the cost of the rest of their education. We asked you and graded about bipartisanship, and you didn't give it a great grade. I'm curious, in light of that answer, what's been the response to the Real Reforms Act? Uh, well, because we haven't been in session very much since the bill was introduced, we haven't had a lot of, of um, talking with other people, and folks have been pretty focused in their own areas. But I'm always optimistic. You know, we passed WIOA in 2013-2014 with great bipartisan support. Uh, we always the work, Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. And I think we can do that again in, in the Education Committee. Uh, I think people, again, know there are problems and know we have to fix things. And I believe there will be pressure put on them by their constituents to make some real reforms and I think there'll be a combination of those things. So, you know, I have to believe I couldn't stay in this business if I weren't an optimist. And the Real Reforms Act is focused on the problem of rising college costs and unmanageable student debt. Correct. Right? Tell me exactly why that focus is important here and where it's missing elsewhere. Well, again, we can't ever catch up in terms of providing help to people for getting a degree, if that's what it is that they're seeking, if the costs keep rising, rising, rising. And colleges and universities have no incentive to stop raising the cost or to be innovative in the way they do programs. You know, we need, we need three-year programs. Uh, we need the colleges and universities to make a lot of changes in the way they're delivering instruction to students. And so what we're hoping is not just with Real Reforms Act, but with other things that we would do in a higher ed act, in uh, a rewrite of WIOA, that we're going to see changes in structure in the way we do workforce development. See, I see all of this as workforce development. People go to college to get a degree, to get a job. People go to a community college either to get certification or a degree to get a job. So in, in my mind, and maybe it's partly because of my experiences that you talked about before, 
in my mind, it's, it should be a seamless operation. But we have to do something about the cost. There'll never be enough money to do this if there isn't something done about the cost. The administration's moves so far, they're very bold. They're very expensive. One is on loan forgiveness on student loans, and the other is on IDR reforms. Now, that may not be all that the administration would like to do on a legislative, but that's what they're doing from an administrative. This is an executive action, right? How much of an effect do you think those actions will have on the costs of college or the things that have led to so, so much student debt so far? Well, it depends on whether any of these lawsuits are, have any impact. If they're able to go through with what they're doing, uh, I'm afraid it's going to have a terrible effect on what's going to happen in the future because why would a student who's going to college this year, taking out a loan, believe they have to pay back the loan when loans are being paid back for other people? So I think it's going to be Katie bar the door in terms of people borrowing money, the schools raising the cost. Uh, I just I just think it's starting almost a tsunami uh, that's going to be very difficult to um, to control. So that's another reason I believe it should be stopped because it, it is unleashing something that shouldn't be unleashed. Let me look a little bit forward. I believe you are aware there's an election coming up and it could turn out that the Republicans retake the House. That would give you a different position on the committee. What would your priorities be, assuming that the Republicans do take the House? Well, one of the number one priorities will be the passage of a Parents' Bill of Rights. Um, we're seeing now, as a result of COVID, as I said earlier, parents have wakened up to what's happening in the schools, and they will want, we want them to have the right to be in charge of their own children's education. They, they, have, they have a right to know what's being taught. They have a right to know where the money's coming from, where the money's being spent. They have a right for their children to be safe. So we will pass the Parents' Bill of Rights. Uh, we will be working with other committees on the priorities that are in a commitment to America. Uh, those, are the, those are priorities that Republicans have that we are all committed to. I think we're going to see... Um, oversight. Uh, there is so much that needs to be done to, to go back and look at how these things were done, uncover the, um, the things that have happened in the Biden administration so far. So that's one area that we will be working on. The other area that we will be working on is proactively on legislation. Again, we will have the rewrite of the um, Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, and I hope we can come up with a much better title than that. When it we, WIOA is a bad acronym. I just I, let me lodge my complaint right now as someone who has to say WIOA. Well, in uh, case frequently. you weren't watching, when it passed the House in 2013, it was called the Skills Act. That that would have been better. But. Right, right. We will we will have um, a Higher Education Reauthorization Act where we would hope to really make a lot more changes than what we've talked about now. Accreditation needs to be looked at. There are lots of things that need to be looked at 
through the Higher Ed Act. Every single piece of the Higher Ed Act needs to be looked at. So that that's a, a huge undertaking for us. That is usually a multi-year undertaking, but we're, work, we're working on it now in the hopes that we will be in the majority and be able to do it. Um, the, whether the Real Reform Act is separate or it's part of the Higher Ed Act will be another big decision that will have to be made. Oh, my goodness, there's so many things that have to be dealt with. Child nutrition, uh, working with the Agriculture Committee on child nutrition. We have a lot. Pension reform. Uh, you know, we've talked about education primarily today, but the Biden administration has been paying off the pensions of unions that are insolvent. Uh, that's another whole area that's in our committee. Health care, another issue. Um, employer sponsored health care. There are so many things that this committee needs to be dealing with that has not been dealing with for the past two years, which is unfortunate. So much education and education policy really happens at the local level. It's, right. it's not a federal issue. I don't think that there's a lot of folks on the left or right that are actually going to argue about that. It's a, it's a local issue. What do you think the role of federal education policy should be, given that so much of the policy that actually makes a difference in the K-12 student experience is local education policy? Uh, well, again, as I said earlier, I, I don't really think the federal government should be involved, but I don't think that's going to happen, okay? We're not going to get the federal government out of education. Um, so I think the plan is to take Hippocratic oath to leave as much uh, flexibility as you can at the local level. Now, there have to be things, the parameters have to be there, for example, Title IX, and, and that is another hornet's nest right there, is what how to deal with it. But whatever is done at the federal level should be going through what we call regular order, through regulatory, um, the, re the administrative procedures process, and not be having things done by guidance letters, and letters coming out of the administration saying, do this, do that. We have at least got to follow accepted policies and principles that have been followed in the past. Dr. Fox, how many school districts do you think there are out there where there are school boards with a Joe on them that is saying, well, we have to do this because the federal government's telling us to? Uh, lots. Lots of them. In fact, almost all of them because they're afraid of the federal government. Just like what Joe said to me when I said, well, what about a little civil disobedience? We just don't do this. He said, well, they'll just cut off all our funding. See, that is the, a big problem in our country right now is that the federal government, on average, gives about nine, well, let me back up myself. The federal taxpayers provide two states and local school systems about nine percent of the money that they spend but they have huge control over a lot i mean they will just say either you do a or you don't get the money for b through z and and that is bad because then 
they can control so much of what goes on. And that is not a good situation. I mean, we could talk about race to the top, for example. Um, President Obama used that as a way to make a lot of changes in school board policies at the state and local level by promising a lot of money to the school systems. And by the way, we got absolutely nothing out of the billions of dollars that were spent on race to the top. The one positive thing that I know of that came out of it was they lifted the cap on charter schools in the states that had caps. North Carolina happened to have a cap. That is the only positive thing that I know of that came out of race to the top. Dr. Fox, I don't have as much time as I'd like with you, so I'm going to go with one last question here. You have been working on education, whether it is at Appalachian State or on the Watauga School Board or on the committee for a number of years, right? We don't have to count them. Let's just say a number of years. Over the next 10 or 20 years, how would you like to say that education has changed in that next time span? Um. <clears throat> I'll tell you again one little story. Um, when I, I, I went to school, went to college for one semester, dropped out, went to New York City and lived for six months with my grandparents, slept on their couch. I found out there, was, uh, there were courses being offered on television. I would get up early every morning and I followed a course in Russian literature. I bought the book, read it while I was working full time. So I was, you know... And I thought, wow, this is great. You can go to school on television. You can watch a program. You don't have to go to someplace. I thought the world, that was going to spread throughout the world in 1962. <laughs> so I don't know if my predictions are the best predictions in the world. Fair enough. But um, I do think we may be seeing the impact of future shock which is the ball is rolling down the hill and it's picking up steam. I think we're going to see a diminution of the role of college degrees. Uh, I, I honestly believe that. I believe that we will see much, much more emphasis on skills and that it won't matter where your skills came from. What will matter is that you have the skills and that somebody can certify that you have those skills. You might have gotten them in an online course on the computer. You might have gotten them in a, the equivalent of what I was doing in 62, you know, a TV class. Uh, you might have gotten them for, from a for-profit school uh, that could change real fast and provide these programs. But I think that's what you're going to see. I think there'll be a diminution of um, the emphasis on a baccalaureate degree, a master's degree, a doctorate. I think those still will be asked for in the academic world but I don't think they're going to be asked. And, and you'll need them in medicine, maybe, in the law profession and those some professions. But I think you're going to see a diminution of it. And I think you're going to see a widening of the options for people at the elementary and secondary level uh, that will mirror the options that are at the post-secondary level. Dr. Virginia Fox, thank you very much. I know you are a busy woman. I thank you for coming thank over you, to Nan. AEI, taking the time to talk to us. Thank Thanks. you also for your service all the way down to the Watauga School Board. I know that probably you probably haven't gotten thanked enough for your 12 years of service on the board, so I'm just going to take my well, last moment to thank you for your service Well, there. thank you. I, I believe it was the right thing for me to do at the time. 
All right. Well, thanks for your time, and thanks for coming on The Report. Thanks for having me at AEI. Thank you for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Congresswoman Fox. We'll include a link to the Real Reforms Act and some of Dr. Fox's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment to leave us a review and help other people find the show. As always, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That is all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.